Welcome to Lawyerly, the podcast for lawyers and those who love them. I'm your host, Sean Kennedy. Today's episode of Lawyerly is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Array. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. Learn more at trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. Today, we are kicking off a new series called How Are You Doing Now? In this series, we're going to be talking with lawyers who used to work for a big law firm called Howry and Simon, and later just Howry. That's where I started my legal career, at Howry's office in Orange County. One of the things that set Howry apart was the fact that the firm was solely focused on litigation. That's a business model that's very uncommon among big law firms. Howry had over 700 lawyers, and pretty much all it did was litigation. It was sort of a litigation boutique on steroids. And it was a great place to work. Great people, great clients, interesting cases. But then, in 2011, it all came crashing down. Seemingly overnight, Howry went from a go-to litigation firm to a cautionary tale, as the firm shut its doors and filed for bankruptcy. Howry's lawyers, me included, were scattered to the four winds. In this series, we're going to introduce you to a number of those people and see how Howry's demise has affected their careers and lives. I wanted to do this series for a couple of reasons. First, I think it's timely, given all the current upheaval and uncertainty in the legal market from the COVID-19 crisis. Firms are cutting salaries, laying people off, and I know a lot of people are wondering if their firm will even survive this. Well, what I hope you'll see is that the end of Howry was not the end for its lawyers. The second reason for this series is a personal one. I want to celebrate what a special place Howry really was. I've heard from many people over the years that Howry was something of a high watermark for their career. And these are people who have gone on to work at great firms and great companies. But there's this common sense that there was something special about Howry. And I want to explore that and introduce you to some of the people responsible for it. So now, without further ado, here's today's episode, where I'm joined by Allison Barker of Drybar. So welcome to Lawyerly. I'm joined today by Allison Barker, who is both a friend and a former colleague. And I figured out today that I've known for about 15 years now, which seems kind of significant. Allison is the Chief Administrative Officer and Chief Legal Officer for Drybar. Welcome, Allison. Thanks, Sean. Happy to be here. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Drybar for those who aren't familiar with the company? Sure. So, so Drybar operates about 150 specialty salons throughout the U.S. and Canada. And unlike a traditional salon that'll do cuts and colors and kind of everything in between, we do one thing only, and we like to say that we're the best at it, and that's blowouts. We do approximately 3 million blowouts per year, which is an incredibly high number that we're always humbled when we, when we hear about it. Um, so women like to come to a dry bar to kind of either get pampered and get that extra special look for a special event, or we have a lot of professional women that like to come in each week to get their hair done for court hearings, client meetings, things like that. And then we also have a product line that supports uh, the looks that we do in our shops. 
Great. So you are the chief legal officer. Yes. Is that essentially general counsel or is that different? Correct. And then you're also the chief administrative officer. What What is that? What do you do there? So in my role as chief administrative officer, I oversee legal, I oversee our human resources team, our IT team. I also oversee all of our new shop development. So that includes new company operated shops, new franchise shops, so franchise sales. About a third of our shops are franchised. And then also oversee construction facilities and real estate. Sounds like you're pretty busy on the business side of things. I am. I think it's one of the things I've enjoyed most about going in-house was really getting to tap into my entrepreneurial and creative side and just really started, you know, originally in an exclusively legal role, but really get involved in all the negotiations and not just kind of waiting to get involved once a contract or a deal landed on my desk, but really partnering with our business team to, you know, actually formulate the deals from the get-go and through that process really got to know the business very, very well and then started to expand my role in, in other areas. That's great. I've heard that from a lot of people that have gone in-house that there's a desire a lot of times for them to grow their sort of footprint and what they do on the business side as well. So it sounds like you've been able to do that pretty well. How is your time split between the purely legal side and, and more the business side? Every single day is different. Today, I had a deposition that I attended. So the majority of my time today was obviously spent focused on on legal matters. But there's other days where, you know, fortunately, Dry Bar doesn't have really significant legal matters. And so I'm able to spend more time focused on the business and the types of compliance things that keep us out of hot water. So I know like a lot of companies, Dry Bar was affected by the COVID-19 crisis. How's that been for you personally? Well, you know, as a member of the team, it's obviously been very challenging and just sad to see that we had to close all of our shops. Never in a million years, you know, did we think, you know, once in a while you close a shop for a few days and that feels painful. But um, in mid-March, we had to make the decision, you know, for the safety and and well-being of both our, our team members, which is what we call our employees and our customers you know, to electively shut down our shops while a large number of the shops have come back online today. Obviously, right now it's in a different form. Um, We have been very, very aggressive and making sure that we have, you know, the very best health and safety measures in place. But it it means that, you know, we're operating at 50% occupancy here in California, where you and I are located. Our shops reopened for a couple of weeks and then Governor Newsom, you know, rolled back the reopening plan and one category and businesses that were shut down again were hair salons, which, which was difficult and disappointing and and just seeing kind of the whiplash that our poor team members are going through. And, you know, my thoughts really go out with them during this very difficult time. You know, personally for me, I don't think I've ever worked harder in my entire life. I kind of have joked, never would I have thought that it was more work to run a business that was shut down than one that was open and thriving, you know, before the pandemic in early March. 
obviously, you know, just managing all of our impacted team members, working with all of our landlords because we're shut down and not operating. Quite a bit of work went on during April and May and really kind of getting ready for the reopening plan and what that meant from a health and safety perspective. So we were consulting with scientists and infectious disease experts and physicians to really make sure that all of the appropriate protocols were in place. So it's been very busy. Um, But one of the things I've been telling a lot of people um, lately and and that others kind of in similar positions have uh, businesses have really echoed is Obviously, we all wish that this crisis had never happened. It, it's been, you know, devastating to individuals and businesses. But I think if you want to take a glass half full approach and look at the silver lining, is it's forcing all of us to be even more nimble than we thought was possible and more creative. And, you know, it's forcing us to look at processes and procedures and the way we did things before that might have been working really well. But now, you know, it's a whole new normal. And so we have to look at it and say, you know, how could we do better, not just because of COVID, but even once things go back to normal, whenever that may be. And so I think the businesses that come out of this are going to be so much stronger and, and leaner and more creative, but it's it's getting there. That's certainly an uphill battle. Sure. Yeah. I think I've been most impressed collectively with the sort of retail business world in terms of how quickly businesses responded to the new restrictions and getting things in place and planning. And it seemed like a Herculean task to do that on the fly for however many places that they're operating in and all the different restrictions that they have in that are particular to those locations. And so, yeah, I've, I've been by and large very impressed with the businesses that have managed to make it through it. Yeah, it, it really was a Herculean task, and, and I think that that's the case for all businesses. I've been so lucky. We have such a fantastic team. So, for example, like we went from, you know, a normal check-in, you walk into the shop, you check in at the front desk or bar in dry bar lingo, to now having a virtual check-in where someone gets, you know, a text message 15, 20 minutes before their appointment time, telling them to let us know by text once they've shown up, but they can then wait outside and we can let them know when we're ready so that we don't have people congregating within kind of the lobby area of our shops. And it seems so easy to do, but it required our IT team to go out and get like a whole new system and build out a new platform and way of doing things. And then, you know, all of the little details, like actually training the shops on how to communicate this way was quite a bit of work. And I don't think the public realizes kind of across the board for these consumer facing companies, just how much work has gone into really reopening businesses in a very safe way. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it that I think people, if they knew what was going on behind the scenes, they'd be even more impressed. So you, before Dry Bar, you've had a couple of other in-house positions. What's different about Dry Bar and maybe your experience there than what you've experienced in the past? You know, I've been really lucky that I always had a good experience at a law firm. And, you know, when I moved in-house, I've had worked for some really great companies that have given me some really great opportunities and also have had fantastic bosses across, you know, all the companies and organizations that I've worked with. You know, each one is unique. Each one has its own challenges and its own priorities. One of the things I really like about Drybar just kind of personally is it truly is such a collaborative and collegial environment. And there's so much respect for each individual at the company, regardless of the size of their role. 
And when you get up each day, we go to work, we spend time away from our family and friends. You know, you're sacrificing to go to work and none of us want to just work for a paycheck. You really want to be personally fulfilled on these difficult days, like at the last five or six months of, of COVID when, um, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel feels dim. It makes such a difference when you're going to work and you really feel like you're part of a team. Everyone's working collaboratively. Everyone's working together. Everyone's really respectful and, and values each person's contribution to the whole. And I think Drybar really sets itself apart from other companies in that way, even other companies where I've had really good working experiences as well. And part of what makes Drybar unique in that way is we have a set of 10 core values. We call it our heart and soul that really guides everything we do. And all companies nowadays, or I should say the majority of companies nowadays, have developed kind of mission values that guide them. But so often it's just relegated, you know, to a piece of paper and something that someone pulls out once a year. But at Drybar, it truly comes up in almost every conversation we have across departments. It's it's something that's daily, and it really is our true north and what we use to guide us in all of our actions and the way that we relate to one another. And when, when things are going well, you don't always need those values to guide you. But when things are challenging, I think what really makes a difference is when you have that core foundation to lean on. And I was happy with it before, but just incredibly appreciative the last couple of months during this crisis to have that foundation at the company. And I think it's what's going to enable Drybar to survive this and to continue attracting really great team members to join the Drybar family. That's great. I think that's such an important and often underappreciated aspect of any work environment. It's just the people and the atmosphere and the relationships that you have there. It's not all about making money. It's not all about the thing that you're building. It's about the people that you're building it with. And I've seen both sides of that, that if you're working with people that you love and appreciate, it's in a great environment that covers over a lot of things that might be challenging. But the other side is true as well. If it's challenging on the personal side, the success of the business doesn't even really cover that. That's so true. I completely agree. So... Before you went in-house, you were at a couple large law firms, including Howery, which we'll get to. What was it like to make that transition from big firm, litigator, lawyer, to going in-house for the first time? I honestly did not know exactly what I was going, getting myself into. And it's funny because when I was at a law firm, really right up until I made the decision to go in-house, I never would have thought. I wanted to go in-house. It was all about, you know, the traditional big law firm partnership model. And that's what I'd signed up for. And that was kind of the plan. And a couple of twists and turns led me to a really great in-house opportunity at the first company I worked for as general counsel, which was a company that's no longer around, but called Wet Seal. They operated about 500 plus specialty shops mostly in the teen apparel space. They were one of the front runners to the Forever 21s and other fast fashion models. And at the time I took the job, I wasn't quite sure I was going to love going in-house, but actually thought, well, if it doesn't work out, I can go back to the firm. I love the firm. And maybe I'll keep a client in the process because I was still very much in that like business development partnership type mindset and ended up just loving wet seal and couldn't imagine myself ever going back to a firm today. And it was such a fantastic experience because, you know, my background was originally heavily focused in intellectual property 
law almost exclusively, which is kind of the peripheral issues that come up, like breach of contract and licensing matters, but really was a litigator with quite a heavy emphasis on appellate work. So definitely not the traditional path to go in-house, particularly as a generalist. But at the time, Wet Seal had quite a few IP issues, more in kind of the soft IP, copyright and trademark space. And they brought me in. And when they brought me in, you know, they obviously it was a generalist role, but the real focus was IP. Nobody really focused on employment law or securities law and kind of other issues like that, despite what's still being a publicly traded company. So I kind of got a crash course from my law firm buddies before making the switch on what it was like to file, you know, 8Ks and 10Ks and <laughs> annual reports and all of that, things that were all very, very new to me, um, being an IP lawyer. And I got there and with it and was very happy. And then within my first six weeks, found out that we had a large systemic investigation into the company's employment practices by the EEOC that nobody had really mentioned to me. <laughs> and we ended up being sued a federal class action for discrimination. And during that same time period, a consent solicitation was undertaken to replace our board and ended up replacing six out of our seven board members, one of kind of the few successful ones back during that era, I guess probably eight years ago now. So very, very quickly learned proxy <laughs> fights and everything I needed to know and didn't want to know necessarily about securities law, but it was such a great experience for me to you know have to get up to speed and also went through a year-long process before we were able to settle both the EEOC investigation and the class action that was filed. And what I learned about employment law has just served me so incredibly well in the eight years since then, you know, since my time at Wet Seal, Wet Seal had 10,000 employees. I then went on to Lucky Brand, another national retailer um, in the denim space that had 3,000 plus employees. At Dry Bar, we have 3,000 plus employees as well, with a heavy presence kind of at all those companies in both California and New York, where, you know, there tends to be quite a bit of employment related litigation and laws to really stay atop. And I think anyone who's in-house counsel at any multi-site company, particularly in California, needs to be well-versed in employment law. And never in a million years when I took the wet seal job did I think I'd be very, very comfortable in that area. But it's one of the areas that I love working in the most. I like people. It's always interesting. And there's an opportunity through it to really make a big impact in the lives of our team members and the company as well. Well, that's great. I think there's a widespread notion out there that to move into an in-house role, you have to have something of a generalist background and you have to already have some real chops in terms of employment law and writing contracts and, and doing all the things that you might need to do on a day-to-day. -day. It sounds like it was definitely not your experience, but you really drank from the, the fire hose when you joined up with the company. I did. <laughs> do you find your, your experience is more typical or would you say you're more of the outlier when it comes to jumping in without that background? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I definitely drank from 
the fire hose because I was the only attorney at, you know, a large publicly traded company that ended up having, you know, the types of legal challenges that that come maybe once in a career or once in a company's lifetime. And I had several of them back to back, but I'm honestly so grateful for that experience because it really prepared me. There, there's nothing that could really be thrown my way now that would make me nervous about my ability to tackle the issue. And I just got exposed to such a wide array of issues. I think as much as companies search for generalists, and I'm now very much a generalist and could never go back to being just like an IP lawyer or something like that. One of the challenges I think is that, you know, law firms, the, the practice of law, particularly private practice law is highly specialized nowadays. And, you know, as, as a client myself now, you know, I want the lawyer as outside counsel, who's an expert in the particular area that I'm working on. And so often, you know, my friends that are in similar positions at other companies, they tend to come from a wide array of backgrounds. Um, A lot come from the corporate space. That doesn't really prepare them to do everything. It, It prepares them to be a really good corporate governance securities lawyer. And I think it's just about lucking into these opportunities where you get to handle a wide variety of matters because you really have to learn these things on the job. And then also just having the confidence and realization that law school teaches us not necessarily how to do everything, but it teaches us how to think. That's really the skill of a lawyer is how do we think? How do we analyze an issue? How do we go and research the right path? Forward. And about six months into my time at Wet Seal, I attended a presentation, and one of the speakers was in house at, at a large company and quite far along in her career, and had been at Walmart and had been at PG and in a variety of legal roles. And she talked about how at one point at PG, she was dealing primarily with IP issues, so very similar to my background. And someone came into her and said, I need you, you know, to get this H-1B visa for an engineer that we want to bring on the team. And they walked out of her office and she panicked and thought, oh my gosh, I'm an IP lawyer. I don't know immigration law. And then she took a deep breath and thought, you know, what? I went to law school. Surely I can figure this out. And especially when you're in-house, you don't need to know every single issue like an outside expert, but you need to know enough to be able to identify the issues and determine what steps you need to take, including bringing in those outside experts at times. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that. You touched a little bit on the desire to bring in the experts outside. What are you personally looking for in an outside counsel when you go to make a hire on a particular matter? First and foremost, I want someone who really knows the particular area of law that's implicated for the issue we have. I want someone who, if they don't know our business already, and that's fine, we work with a lot of male outside counsels who, you know, might not be familiar with the dry bar concept, which is primarily female focused. I want them to be willing, you know, to dig in and understand Because even if it can seem like a very discreet legal issue, you really need to understand the company to understand how we integrate kind of the legal outcome with our business objectives. I think communication is really, really key between all in-house and outside counsel and just making sure you're aligned on what the strategy is, what the concerns are, the pitfalls, you know, things like budgets, you know, what are expectations around that. And so I would just say communicate, communicate and communicate but then communicate in the right way. 
There are some in-house counsels that want a very, very formal memo where you lay everything out. That's not my style. I always say, give me like the super quick and dirty, give me the bullet points, and give me your recommendation. I get very frustrated when outside counsel, and and it doesn't happen too much because we have really great outside counsel, but where they'll shoot me an email and say, here's the law, and then say, what do you want to do? But they didn't give me a recommendation. And that's really what I'm paying outside counsel for is their expertise. Might not be that I'm always 100% aligned with their recommendation, but I want to start from that as a benchmark as to where we're going in terms of next steps. Sure. You want to have them not just set the table for you. You want them to actually put the plate in front of you and say, here, you should try this. Exactly. Let's take a quick break and we'll come right back. Lawyerly is brought to you today by our presenting sponsor, Array. With offices throughout the nation, Array is the litigation support partner that delivers speed, accuracy, and unmatched service. Array manages the logistics of litigation, so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. For information on their discovery, managed review, deposition, alternative dispute resolution, and subpoena services, visit trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. And now, back to the show. So let's talk about you before you were a lawyer. When did you first think, you know what, I want to be a lawyer? So I was not that person that wanted to be a lawyer at five, even though my parents would argue that I had, you know, the argumentative skills and negotiating (laughs) skills to be a good lawyer. I was actually one who was really kind of diehard pre-med my entire life, went to Georgetown for undergrad, and while I majored in government, I followed the pre-med track, largely didn't go with kind of the traditional biology or, or chemistry major because I really enjoyed writing and reading and had all these other interests despite being, you know, very committed to the pre-med track and knew you could really do both and apply to med school and did the pre-med track all through college, took the MCAT, was doing research at NIH, was like super, super (laughs) committed, but was always taking like government and philosophy and theology courses. You know, Georgetown's like a solidly liberal arts school that, that really focuses on the humanities. And I had this biology professor who was fantastic, Professor Heidi Edelman. And she had a background in bioethics, and a couple of us were interested in that, wrote papers, did some research with her. She sent us to a symposium at Princeton and, you know, just kind of really opened my eyes up to all the other areas where you could really like science and kind of that technical background, but also be someone that wasn't focused solely in the lab or in a hospital as a doctor and was just talking with her. And she said, you know, have you ever heard of this thing called patent law? And I kind of had, but not really. And she said, you know, I have one of my alums who was a biology major, one of my top students, and ended up becoming a patent litigator. And you just really remind me a lot about her. So why don't you look into this? Because I think it's something that you should look into. And I never really had that permission by someone in the sciences to kind of validate that I also have these other interests and strengths, particularly in writing. And I looked into it. And this was the beginning of my senior year. So like I was sending in my applications to med school, like super, super far down that path. 
And all of a sudden, something just kind of clicked where it was like, I love science, but I can't imagine four more years of med school plus residency plus fellowship where I suddenly don't get to take all these other classes that I was able to take in undergrad that really helped me to identify other areas of academic strength and passion and kind of picked up the phone, called my parents and said, guess what? I'm applying to law school instead. (laughs) Um, You quickly, you know, switched a few of my courses, like the very last day you could, could switch courses with the school's registrar and signed up for the LSAT, applied early to Georgetown for law school and ended up getting in that uh, Christmas and never looked back. And it was one of the areas why post-law school, I originally focused on intellectual property law because I really liked that I was able to kind of combine my my two loves of both writing and kind of innovation and science and, and the technical skills. So you ended up coming to Howery in Orange County. I met you while you were still in law school. So when you think back on your time at Howery, what's your general memories of the place? What's your general impression? I don't think there's another big law firm out there like Howery. And and all of us that were privileged to be part of that team and that family, I haven't heard anyone who, who spent time there as a lawyer and doesn't echo those same sentiments. We were all litigators. We were all very cutthroat when it came to being fierce advocates for our clients. And yet what was amazing was despite all of these kind of type A, hyper-competitive people, we were really very, very much a team. And all law firms nowadays like to say we're one firm and we work across offices and practice groups, but I've never seen it the way that we did at Howry. And 15 plus years later, most of my closest friends came from Howry or people I met through Howry people. We've all, you know, despite kind of scattering between a mix of in-house and outside council positions, have done a fairly good job of staying in touch. And I don't think any of us has found a law firm experience quite like Howry. And it is one of the reasons that I decided to look in-house because the firm I went to after that, while a very good firm that I was happy at, it just didn't have that magic that was part of Howry. And I thought, you know, no other law firm's going to. So let me kind of switch gears entirely and try a a new work environment and, and try to capture that in another forum. That is the most remarkable thing I think about Howry is that I hear that same thing from almost everybody that was at Howry. I mean, that was the common experience. That's mainly the reason that I wanted to do this. This podcast was, you know, my sort of thesis is a lot of it has to do with the people that were part of the firm at that point. And it really was a remarkable group of people. What do you chalk it up to? I like how you said the magic. What was the magic? Yeah, I mean, it was that you got these really cutthroat people that in any other law firm would be going at each other's throats and kind of trying to undermine each other and wouldn't know how to separate their aggressive advocacy for their clients that Howry was known for so much more than even other litigation-focused firms. But we didn't carry that into our relationships with one another. And I think so much of that was the modeling of the leadership firm-wide. And obviously, you know, in the Orange County office where we were located, Bill Rookledge, Russ Hill, 
Bob and Martha Gooding. I mean, just tremendous, tremendous leaders that it was never about pitting associates or partners against each other. It was how could we really work together as one team? Yeah, I think it's the same. It's the combination of the quality of the people, the quality of the lawyers with this environment of truly collegial environment. It came from the top down. And I went back even further, you know, the Tom Nolans of the world and the like. And I think they are largely responsible for, you know, the the environment that we all sort of shared. Yeah, I mean, we were billing crazy hours. And yet most days, you know, large chunks of the office and, and not just in Orange County, I had it in DC, I had it in Chicago, you know, when I was visiting various offices, LA, we would take time and we would go and eat lunch together. And that's where you really develop those relationships. And I think much of like my dry bar experience where there's really a respect and value for each individual, regardless of the size of the role. I think that's what was so true and so unique about Howry. You know, it had the typical kind of on paper hierarchy of a firm with, you know, paralegals and associates and senior associates and partners and equity and non-equity. But when it came to interacting with one another as individuals, those titles disappeared. And, you know, it wasn't uncommon for an associate and partner to go out to lunch together just truly as colleagues and friends and not, you know, as the associate trying to impress the partner. And there was friendships across those, you know, lines of titles. And I remember, you know, at the next firm I went to, several Howry folks, we kind of all traveled together. And the first time a partner invited some associates from this new firm out, I think it was for frozen yogurt or coffee or something. And everyone said, oh my gosh, I can't believe this partner. And it was Frank Cote, <laughs> you know, is, is like just chatty, like they're just regular human beings because three years before he'd been an associate. And while there, again, there was obviously a respect when it came to, you know, reviewing briefs and final decision making, as individuals, we didn't apply those labels. And I think that was so, so key. Yeah. So you mentioned billing hours. What's the most hours you ever billed at Howry? Probably close to 3,000. That's a lot of hours. Were you sleeping? I was. I don't know if you'll recall because I'm not this way anymore, but I used to be that person who would get in the office about six each morning because I wanted to be able to knock out like three or four uninterrupted billable hours before other people arrived. And I was definitely one who could sit in my office with the door closed for 10 or 12 hours a day and, you know, write an appellate brief. And it's so funny because I just loved kind of the consistency of that and churning away. And now, you know, I probably never spend more than like an hour on any one individual project in my day because my role is so diverse and varied and there's always, you know, things popping up that I'm having to kind of jump into. So I think it's just a testament that we're all a lot more flexible and varied than than we think we are. Sure. So who is Uncle Howry? Who is Uncle Howry? Do you want a specific name or... (laughs) So what that means. Let me, yeah, Uncle what that Howry's means. many people to me. <laughs> uncle Howry is kind of our imaginary uncle who is firm and drives us to success, but also really loving because we had a lot of fun at Howry. I mean, only Howry would have a summer associate program called a boot camp that literally was like a legal boot camp where you were doing, you know, these mock trials, but having a ton of fun 
while doing it. But when I think of kind of a mix of people at Howry, that's kind of this imaginary mythical Uncle Howry figure that that we look to as kind of like our silent benefactor. I think are really a mix of Alan Grimaldi and Bill Rookledge, two fantastic internationally known lawyers who work as hard as anyone you could ever meet. And yet they're also the ones who never hesitate to pause and sit down, even with that, you know, junior summer associate or first or second year lawyer, explain things to them, help gently guide and correct them if they need that and and get to know them as people, just like you would want, you know, a beloved uncle to do. That's really well put. I like that. So unfortunately, Howry did go under in unceremonious kind of fashion. Were you there all the way till the end, essentially? So Howry filed, I believe it was in March. And the group that I left with of of really kind of the IP team out of Orange County, we joined our next firm, Jones Day. Um, I believe it was February 2nd. So We weren't there quite until the end, but pretty darn close. And, you know, when we made the decision to transition and and join the Jones Day team, it was with the understanding that our time at Howry was was quickly coming to an end and we wanted to be able to be thoughtful about where we landed and and not kind of feel rushed and um, to make a decision. Yeah, what's your recollection of sort of what that time leading up to that period was like? know it was obviously a bit a bit stressful because it was so sad to see kind of the end of an era but one thing that I think about and especially you know so many firms have kind of folded in the years since Howry is we were really and again across offices really cognizant about taking care of our teams and making sure to the best of our ability We went as groups and you didn't have just partners kind of defecting and leaving on their own and not taking care of the junior partners and the associates down to the paralegals, the legal assistants, the the office workers, that there was really, really that kind of family atmosphere and responsibility that we wanted to make sure that no man or woman was left behind. And as the Irvine office of Howry, we really largely landed at, at two firms and was so grateful that we were kind of able to keep the team together as as much as possible despite, you know, challenging circumstances. Yeah, I felt the same way. There was a lot of uncertainty at the time and there was a lot of rumors and a lot of just nobody knew what was going on. But at the same time, that leadership that you had among especially the few kind of leaders of the office that you knew that you had a place with them. But ultimately, looking back on it now, however many years it's been, people really have been scattered all over the place. And I don't know that that would be true to that extent if it hadn't have been for how refolding like that. And so I, I wonder how many of our sort of careers and lives have been seeded in a way by how we suddenly folding and everybody having to go elsewhere. I think it's had a tremendous impact. I mean, I know for me personally, I I 
have a hard time believing I would have looked at an in-house opportunity had Howry still been here because I would have continued that path and probably been very, very happy there. And, you know, a large number of our colleagues have gone in-house. And, and I think that's the very true that if you talk to them, you know, they were happy at Howry. They went to other firms and those other firms were really good firms with good people, but it just lacked that that magic, that special sauce that made Howry Howry and opened them up to consider other opportunities. And so for me, as much as I, I miss Howry, I still think of it as the good old days and am so grateful for my time there. I also look at the silver lining, but but for Howry's demise, I wouldn't have likely been open to an in-house opportunity and certainly not at the time that I was. And it's just been, you know, such kind of a, a beautiful path for me going forward and one I'm so grateful for because I'm able to really in an in-house role where I can wear many, many hats, get to really expand and, and fully utilize all of my talents and resources. Yeah, I, I like how you put that. What would you say has been one of your career highlights post Howry? Um, certainly a most recent memory was in January, we closed a deal with Helen of Troy. It's a publicly traded company out of El Paso to sell off our product division for $255 million. And it was an incredibly complicated deal because, you know, to the consumer, they come into our shops, they, we have our shops, we have our product line. It, it still looks completely cohesive and like one brand, but technically our shops and our product line have two different owners. And so going through the process of negotiating that deal, or we have shared websites and shared social media sites and, you know, shared IP. And I was really grateful for my IP background because it's one of kind of the most complicated IP licensing deals out there. I, I think one day it'll make a really interesting case study for Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School. But really shepherding that process along with the rest of our executive team through has been one of my proudest achievements. And, and you know, not just from kind of a legal perspective, but also we're still in the middle of an 18-month transition services agreement with our teams on, on the Drybar product side and really finding a way to both separate um, the two entities, but also remain completely integrated in terms of the vision for the brand and the consumer experience going forward. And, and it's really challenged and enabled me to stretch and continue to take on new roles and, and new hats within the organization as, as we build out the company even more. I want to close with a few sort of rapid fire type of questions for you. What's your favorite thing to do to unwind? My favorite thing to do to unwind would probably be to read. I'm a pretty voracious reader and read probably a couple hundred thousand pages a year. Outside of work and, and legal reading and things like that, I read a couple of books a week. A couple hundred thousand pages a year. Yes. That's that's a lot of pages. Some people call it an obsession. <laughs> <laughs> it's an acceptable one, though. What does that translate into as far as books? Um, I mean, I'm literally reading usually, you know, anywhere from five to eight books a week um, in any given week. Um, it's not unusual for me, you know, to read a book a day. Um, and certainly on the weekends, I power through. I am a very, very fast reader. So, you know, that that does help. But I'm also one who literally like always has one or two books in my purse or, you know, briefcase so that 
if there's any downtime. Not that I'm totally immune to going on social media, but I do try to like pick up that that book. And when I can't sleep at night, I try not to go on my phone. I pick up a book and read it. So um, that's what I like to do to unwind. That's impressive. That's really impressive. What's your position on lawyer shows? You a fan or not? On lawyer what? Television shows. Oh, shows. So I always tell people, no, I'm traditionally not a fan of lawyer shows. Um, and I don't watch that much TV, but I am obsessed with Ozark, which, you know, is a little bit violent and definitely inconsistent with the types of shows I normally like, which tend to be a little bit more lighthearted and comedic. But if I had to have a job in another life, I might want to be the cartel's lawyer. <laughs> Uh, um, I think that position is still open. Do you have a favorite lawyer movie? Favorite lawyer movie. Do you have time to watch movies because you're reading so much? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge movie person, and I'm trying to think of recent. I don't. I can't recall any recent lawyer movies that I've seen. I did really like this TV show in addition to Ozark that was very lawyer focused, and it was Dirty Sexy Money. And the guy on it was from Six Feet Under, and he was kind of like the personal lawyer of this very conflicted, very wealthy, wealthy family. And I liked that a lot. And I also like the lawyer on Succession, the general counsel there. That's also another not purely legal show, but lots of legal elements involved in it that I enjoy kind of watching, watching the the. Those so the lawyer, the lawyer, the lawyer for the shady people is the, is the theme. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but I've been lucky in my real life to work for non-shady people, but yeah. yes. Um, so what's one thing you learned about yourself during the COVID crisis? You know, I think it's that I realized how much of a people person I am, you know, as someone who reads a lot, I tend to be one who's very comfortable with alone time, you know, pre-COVID, I would have told you that I didn't really need a lot of external contact, worked remotely probably more than a lot of other people in the office, because sometimes I would like to just not have the distractions of work. But when you don't have access to people, you realize how much you miss them and how much it's kind of necessary to thrive, you know, for me to thrive on them. And so I'm now like in the office more than other people while we're largely shut down and really reaching out to friends and family in a more meaningful way. I think we got to wrap up, but it has been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. Special thanks to Allison Barker for joining us. And thanks as well to our presenting sponsor, Array. You can learn more about Array at trustarray.com. Join us again next time as we continue the How Are You Doing Now series here on the Lawyerly Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Lawyerly and give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Production services for today's episode are by Four Hours of Sleep. And the music for the show is by Rhythmic Revival. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy. <laughs>